0: Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast helping wine students and wine enthusiasts alike to learn about all the wines of the world. I'm Matthew Gorn, and I'm a WCT certified educator and in this podcast I explore different wine regions and different grape varieties and also interview producers from all around the world to explore the vast world of wine. So I'm with Peter Andrews of um, Culture Wine Cup, which is a company that he recently founded which imports um, solely South African wine, so I'm quite excited to talk to him about South Africa and everything that's going on there, and also the different markets for South African wine uh, and the different trends. Um, he's a former WCT diploma student of mine, and so everything he knows he got from me, so he's clearly <laughs> very intelligent, <laughs> very learned, um, but. Before we start talking about South Africa, uh, talk about yourself, just um, your background, and why you decided to form a South African import company. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so, my wine journey started with cooking, like I think so many of us. Um, I was a culinary school student right out of high school uh, at Johnson Wales University, and at that point, I thought, Entirely, I was going to be a chef and open restaurants and kind of had a vision for a farm to table restaurant. Um, fortunately, Johnson and Wales really pushed uh, doing business courses throughout, which helps to get you to be a more rounded individual. But they also offered WCT classes as an 18 year old. Um, they had a, a special license that allowed them to taste minors, underage minors, with wine. So I started doing WSAT level one and level two before I even turned 21. Um, So the cooking program brought me to living in Italy, among other places, but living in Friuli Venezia Giulia and working in a Michelin star restaurant and working 80 hours a week and uh, ended up being about two euros an hour. And (laughs) that's where I realized like, this wasn't, uh, this. I just couldn't do this. I wasn't good enough of a chef to do this long-term, nor was I willing to like sacrifice basically a work-life balance. And luckily, I was very close to Colio, and went and tasted Friolano, and Rifosco, and Ribola Jalla, and just, that, I just fell in love. So I was 21 at the time, um, came back home and started doing WSCT3, then the diploma, working in retail, and uh, it kind of eventually led to this. Um, in the last three to four years, I was uh, the vice president of sales and operations at Vinfolio, um, and so there I was mostly focusing on high-end collector wines, and, which was amazing. I'd walk through our warehouse and see pallets of Lafitte and Mouton and DRC and just like amazing wines, but I realized in that time that that world didn't fill my cup at all Um, obviously drinking those wines was exceptional and I was very lucky but I didn't feel connected to the product so when I was uh, visiting South Africa a lot of things clicked for me Um, the the people the culture the quality of the wine and, and definitely this underdog story and I realized that especially that story Telling the story of the underdog is like what I wanted to be more a part of in wine. What drew me to it in the first place, and what made me decide to start Culture Wine Co.
0: Yeah, um, I've visited South Africa a couple of times, and mm-hmm. had the same kind of experience. Which just like it's an amazing country, and also the wines are vastly under underappreciated yeah. um, here in the U.S. I think that's slowly changing. So I've got some of the wines that you've imported into my wine club, mm-hmm. and they've been very well received. And I think it's just putting the wines in front of people's faces, getting mm-hmm. them to taste them and realising how good they are, yep. whereas they don't necessarily just walk off the shelf like other regions do. But it's a beautiful country to visit, as you say, the people look wonderful, and there's lots of um, trends and developments in South Africa, which we're going to talk about. So let's talk with... the About pinotage, which Mm -hmm. people have perceptions about, often negative, Mm -hmm. um, but often not really thinking about the variety enough. They've been given perceptions rather than actually considering it. Um, Again, when I when when I went to South Africa, I learned a lot about pinotage, and that it's a lot more interesting than people give it credit for. And in my club, from your um, import selection, I've had the. Pinotage, which has been really well received by members and by students. Um, Tell me about Pinotage and your re-perceptions. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. (laughs) So first off, Pinotage is a grape varietal that is a cross. Um, It is a cross of Pinot Noir and Cinso, um, which if you think about those two grapes on their own, they are pretty light-bodied, medium-ish tannin. One is a little more refined and elegant in Pinot Noir, and one has some kind of wild, brambly elements in Cinco. um Yet, a lot of what we saw for many years in Pinotage was full bodied, rich, super extracted. And so there was a disconnect there. Um, but the grape itself was created, or the crossing itself was created in South Africa in the 1920s. Um, the first vineyard was planted in the 50s in Stellenbosch at a vineyard called Bellevue. And then the first vintage was made by Lanzarac in 1959, released in 1961. Um, That wine ultimately won like wine of the year um, in South Africa, which like, you know, obviously blew up the notoriety of it and made people interested. But to your point about misconceptions, in the 70s, a group of masters of wine went to South Africa and uh, left not so ideal tasting notes in their wake. Um, A lot of rusty nail and burnt rubber and like horrible descriptors. and so. At the time Pinotage was growing, this happened. It started receding. There was after that by the late 70s, early 80s, there was like less than 10,000 hectares left of the grape varietal in the country. And so since then, it's kind of like been about learning and how to make it better. Um, again at the time it was high alcohol a lot of new oak which was new to the country new oak was new to the country at the time anyway Um, so there was a lot of experimentation with that but then with pinotage especially it really in my opinion didn't jive very well so the great varietal is high in amino acids it's high in nutrients it's low in p or high in ph rather and so if you can figure out how to kind of manage that in the cellar you can be left with a wine that's Elegant aromatic where the best of Pinot Noir and Censo come out And so I think what you're seeing now and especially in the the of Sinai Atlanticus that you brought in your club that I import That's exactly how they're focusing on the wine how Bernard focuses on it So if you try to keep the alcohol low pick it at low bricks You maintain or manage that high nutrient amino acid level in the must You can be left with the wine that is red fruited red flower from pinot noir a little bit brambly and slightly bitter from the cinso and just like fresh and really just silky tannin um to further help with that bernard and that particular wine keeps it in all stainless steel so super fresh um, another element of, of pinotage that i think is the best path forward uh is planting it with bush vines and so this is a thing we can talk about like for hours in south africa uh, bush vines are all over the country, but um, you see them more in the Swartland, um, and then some in Stellenbosch, and then either further east in Walker Bay. But the concept of bush vines is that you have a lot of space in between the vines. You have um, typically a fairly large canopy. Water becomes an issue because you're not irrigating. Um, and so you keep yields fairly low. And I think that's another really important part with Pinotage is the lower the yield, you keep that concentration, which helps you to bring out more of those red fruit, red flower aromas. So this style of kind of freshness, low alcohol, you know, letting the Pinot Noir and so of that cross and Pinotage shine, I think it's the next path forward for this, this wine. There's still plenty of kind of brutish examples coming out but when we look at you know this next generation of south african winemakers like bernard at signs of sinai like the boys at monskane out in walker bay uh, with their herbarium red uh, you have Intelligo and wolf and woman in the swartland you're you're getting these kind of more mellow examples of it and i think that is really enlightening people to what pinotage can be it's kind of breaking down the perception of the quote-unquote rusty nails that has unfortunately stuck for way too long. And I think giving this new path forward for the grape that is making people really excited about it.
0: Yeah. Well, the first uh, (coughs) time I tasted that style of Pinotage was uh, David and Nadia Mm. from Mm Swartland, where I was like, this is like Beaujolais. This is not what I was expecting. And the wine you import, the Signs of Sinai, is a bit like that too. And I commented when I tasted the wine, oh yeah, Pinot Noir and Sanso finally makes sense that, <laughs> that it's a crossing of those two grapes. Mm-hmm. So you taste the big oaky wines or the the chocolate coffee style, which is terrible. You don't really think of Pinot Noir or Senso. Mm-hmm. But these more modern contemporary styles, you definitely do. And this kind of points to the, the history of South Africa, everything you've been saying. is kind of like a, a narrative of South Africa's history mm-hmm. and the ups and the downs. And of course, South Africa coming out of apartheid they didn't really realize what the quality of their wines was like compared to other countries because they were so isolated. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a a realization that maybe they weren't quite good enough.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think with South Africa, you know, you had apartheid from the early 60s to 94. And obviously it got progressively worse and worse. And the country became more and more isolated during that time. Uh, in the midst of that you had the KWV this monopoly system that was controlling quotas and, and really created I think the most important thing is that it created a lot of boom and bust cycles right and so you saw that a lot in like Australian wine industry as well right and so you have these just quality over quantity mindsets in, an, in a country that's just like trying to get by uh, with a horrible government uh, and then at the same time, because of isolationism, you're losing the element of outside education and influence. And so for this like 40 year stretch of time, it was like it was like time stood still, you know. And so the learnings were really slow and they were really within the country itself. But since apartheid has ended in 94, the learnings have been like 20 times as fast. So the country is caught up in such a major way and now i think what's happening is this current generation these 20 to 30 somethings that have grown up in the post-apartheid world they've grown up in this era of learning right and so they're bringing all of this interest and curiosity and quick learning to the table fast and it's it's changing things so quickly and i think that's a big part of like what makes the wines that i import so interesting is that they're they're they are the new wave and they're they're pushing boundaries and i think that's why like pinotage that we're talking about from signs of sinai that's why that one is the way it is because the there's like a lot of questions like why was it done this way and why not this way because this way to me is better in that lighter style so there's it's complicated it's nuanced but it's, uh, I think the quality has exploded in these 30 years, and I think very importantly, that boom and bust kind of thing is done. It's been very consistent and steady, and you're seeing quality rise. You're seeing co-op. Co-op's still controlled by 80% of the wine made, but you're seeing that start to drop. You're seeing bottled wine uh, grow from the export level. Um, you're seeing the value of wine grow from the export levels. So all these things are good for the long-term kind of viability of the industry.
0: And of course Pinotage um, is part of South Africa's history, but also Sanso is as well, mainly because it was a high yielding Uh grape. Uh, But it's interesting with Chenin Blanc as well, Mm -hmm. which is so widely planted, that these young winemakers are really leaning on South Africa's rich wine history while being dynamic and contemporary at the same time.
1: Absolutely. So yeah, to that point... um, there, you know, that, that opens up so many different doors and things to, to, to talk about. But I think to go back to the monopoly system, the goal was quality over quantity, right? So Sinso, high-yielding grape. Chenin Blanc, high-yielding grape while still maintaining acidity, right? So you can make these huge blends, these huge volume of blends and still have some element of freshness. And so during those those kind of dark years, uh, during the apartheid days especially, it was like plant Everything, everywhere, get, just get as much as you can in the ground. And in some cases, that actually has benefited today, right? So I import a wine um, called uh, by a wine, a little label called Processus, and they make like 500 cases a year, but they make wine from one vineyard in the Worcester area, so a couple hours northeast of Cape Town. And that vineyard has been around for 40 years and has been largely there to supply co-ops. But now you're seeing the... Um, the, the vineyard owners start to rethink that. You have been seeing that, but you're seeing it even more. And so you're seeing these uh, vineyard owners basically say, okay, this is really high quality fruit. Why is it going to a co-op and getting blended away? This should be its own label. And these other new labels are popping up like processus. And so what was initially planted for a co-op, for a blend this bulk thing is actually a, a grape varietal or the, the correct grapes in the right soils Planted with the right uh, training methods and you have this like excellent source And so more than 50% of the wines planted or the grapes planted in South Africa today are over 20 years old And so that shows you like how much heritage stock there is to play with um, Which is a phenomenal thing Um, and to go even further you have one of the most famous viticulturists in the world Name is Rosa Kruger a South African um, woman who is a consultant for a lot of the best wineries in the country. She started this, uh, along with a few other folks, uh, this great nonprofit called the Old Vines Project. And uh, this is a a wonderful thing that's now international. And so basically if you, the the stipulations are, if the vineyard is over 35 years old, then it can be within this, it it can be protected. It has to be, uh, there has to be some paperwork that proves it's obviously this old. and then basically if you uh, you can get this seal and then you have to keep, you know, you can't replant but so much uh, vines in a year. And it's now there's like 10,000 acres of vines in South Africa. They're certified old vine. And in the next decade, that number could grow quite immensely. Um, and you're seeing that in Australia, in parts of Europe, even here in the US. And so there's a lot more thought put into like, well, we had these vines planted mostly for quantity over quality now we've got this great amount of stock to work with let's protect that and ensure that these are continuing to like make this quality of this of this wine better so a lot of the story now is about how do we take the hand we were dealt and turn it into the best thing possible and it's actually quite quite positive
0: well that's the paradox of south africa isn't it it's like it's modern, but it's historic as well, and that's why it refuses to be termed as new world. I once said that to a South African winemakers that we
1: are not new world <laughs> for sure. I mean, they just had their 365th winemaking anniversary uh, last Friday. So yeah, definitely definitely not new <laughs>
0: yeah. And I don't like that term anyway, but sometimes it's an easy shorthand, but it does cover a lot of um, misconceptions about various non-European countries for
1: definitely. Sure. I think the concept of old world and new world is starting to kind of break away a little bit, which yeah. I think is is, uh, is worth it. Yeah, it's a good time.
0: Um, let's talk about Rhone varieties, because some of the best wine, or most enjoyable wines I've had from South Africa have been from Grenache, Syrah, Mourvedre, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about those great varieties?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Syrah is one of the most... Uh, widely planted grape varieties in the top three in the country. Um, Grenache and Mermedra are also in the top ten. Um, and you see you see an amazing diversity of winemaking styles within those grapes in South Africa, which I think if you want to boil the, the country down to a few descriptors, I think diversity would be one of the most important. Diversity in people, diversity in styles, diversity in climates, soils, regions. So when you see Syrah and Grenache Mavedra from the Swartland, it is coming from a hot climate that is typically more iron soil and pretty robust and full bodied. But you still get these aromatics like you get from the Northern Ruin. But then you can go east to the Walker Bay where it's cool climate and you get these beautiful, like elegant Syrah Grenache wines. So the the styles are incredibly diverse from this country when you're talking driving only an hour and a half two hours end to end on the, on the wine production scale so um i think that syrah is quite possibly the best red grape from the country right now uh from a couple from the the producers that i work with uh are, are really interesting and wildly different from one another uh, so for instance Sion de sinai who has the pinotage uh, that we've been chatting about. He has a single vineyard called Swanessong, um in the Stellenbosch. It's also bush vines planted by his grandfather in the late 90s, the last one he planted before he passed away. It's grown a mile from the coast, so very cool climate. And there's a lot of this sandy silica granite. And so with South Africa, you have a few main soil types. You have granite, you have uh, iron, you have schist, and then you have some sandstone and then kind of different parts within. And so the sandy silica soil lets those vines go really deep. So you get a pretty large canopy and you get really aromatic, fresh Syrah. So the uh, winemaker Bernard, he made wine in Northern Rhone at Gem So he's got this kind of pedigree of winemaking from this grape anyway. So you taste it and it's got these savory qualities but this really refreshing acidity. And then you go to the Swartland an hour, hour and a half west, much warmer, I mean they've had 30 degrees celsius days leading into their harvest for like a week straight right it's very 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 warm so water becomes an issue you have much more iron and schist in the soil so you have these much looser canopies thicker skins higher tannin so the beauty of of the diversity of these wines is it's so wide so you know i think all the grapes we've talked about are Somewhat challenging to sell. <laughs> you know, consumers look for what they know in Syrah, or excuse me, in Cabernet, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. Syrah, Grenache, Mervedra, Chenin, they're, they're not necessarily varieties that most consumers ask for, but these Rhone varieties give like all of the elements of what people would want from like their Cabernet or their Pinot Noirs or their Merlots. So they're just wines that once you get them in the glass, they really are eye-opening. And and again, that comes from just this tremendous diversity of how they basically grow in all of the regions
0: in the country. Yeah, and South Africa has a moderate to warm Mediterranean climate. Mm -hmm. So ideal for many of these great varieties and the reason why Sanso was so successful in Mm -hmm. the past and is now for different reasons with the old wines. Um, Well, we have a a wine open that you import, um, Sauvignon Blanc, so that's a very different grape variety, but um, also well suited to the um, coastal climate of Walker Bay and surrounding regions. Can you talk about this wine, Elton?
1: Yeah, so this is a 2022 Clain Kyle Savignon Blanc from a vineyard called the Amos Blanc. Um, this is a uh, really interesting vineyard because it is the oldest of Savignon Blanc in the country. Um, it was planted in 1965, and it is bush vines. So I, I honestly can't think of many, if any, vineyards of Sauvignon Blanc that are bush vines. It's just not common. And so it's planted in the iron coffee clip soil. So coffee clip are these little irony pebbles that basically give these really textured wines, but also smoky. Further, uh, Charles Back, the owner of this winery, him and his winemaker, Charles, they do a little bit of skin contact with this to give it some texture, which I think is really nice. And then age it in neutral barrels of leaves that continue giving some of that texture. Um, but the, the really interesting thing about this, this wine is, it, I think it really tells the story of Swartland as a whole, because right after Apartheid ended in, in, 90, ended in 94, but in 95, Charles Back, who owns uh, the Fairview uh, Winery in Stellenbosch, which is best known for the Goats do Rome label, he went to the swartland co-op which was one of maybe two producers in the entire region at the time uh and and was looking to find more juice to 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 grow the goats Serum uh, label and he came across a tank of Savion blanc and basically it, it was this vineyard and it, it blew his mind so he made an offer to buy the vineyard he he won the offer and then In just a couple of years, launched a label called Spice Root. And that was one of the first independent wineries of the entire region. Now there are about 30 producers there Mullino, David and Nadia, Sadi, Badenhorst. You know, the most important wineries, arguably in the whole country, are based in this region that was just in the 1990s known for co ops only. So when Charles started Spice Root, he actually hired Ibn Sadi to be his first winemaker. And that was his first winemaking gig before going off and starting the Sadi family wines. And so this, this vineyard, not only being the oldest in South Africa, it really launched this like revolution of, this is an organic certified, of you know organic, holistic grape growing, an entire region focusing on this and really focusing on site and soil so like when you when you think about where Swartland is today in this revolution that has started really with the Sadi, Badenhorst, Molyneux and Porcelainburg when you look at that it really started with Charles Pack going in tasting this specific vineyards wine this exact Sauvignon Blanc and kind of seeing whoa the potential here is is enormous and we're, we're missing out by letting this go into a co-op and Again, to go back to, you know, the whole current story of South Africa, the, the concept of looking at these vineyards that were historically put into blends and making them into single varietal, single label wines, it's, the potential for this country is enormous. So it's, it's really amazing to taste the wine that's come this far and to know where it, where it started.
0: Yeah, I definitely get that um, smoky character that you've mentioned mm-hmm. and a nice spiciness to it as well it's not too herbaceous but it's still recognizably sauvignon blanc definitely with the dungeness crab season right now it's so it's so
1: perfect and as we get into the spring as well with all the, the fresh vegetables and the greens it's like so wonderful
0: with that style of cuisine yeah um <clears throat> when visiting south africa producers are very keen to emphasize regional regionality but south africa has lots of different regions with different climates, different soil types. I'm really trying to get consumers to understand that there's a lot of di- diversity um, within the country. Um, what about sparkling wine? So Method Cap Ka- Classique is one of the few mm-hmm. regions, uh, few sparkling wines outside of Europe that has a technical term and has rules to it. Um, you import a very good one by a producer called Gene- Geneviève. Um, what can you tell me about South African sparkling wine? Yeah,
1: I think... I mean, they love sparkling wine. <laughs> <Who doesn't? laughs> and, and I know, right? So true. Every time I, I, didn't realize this, but when I visited for the first time, I mean, everywhere you go, it's about it's a it's a glass of Cap Classique to start whatever event. You you know, you go out for a sundowner, you go out to a nice dinner, you get to the winery. Everything is greeted with Cap Classique.
0: Actually, that that happened to me as well. because We went to Klein Constancia mm-hmm. and I went there for the sweet wine, mm-hmm. of course. Um, but we went to the middle of the vineyard look, look, overlooking False Bay mm-hmm. and they gave us the Cap Classique and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm yeah. happy <laughs> yeah, right, you kind of like start to realize that it's, it's,
1: made in, it's made in a lot of ways and so, it's amazing so Cap Classique is uh, the South African term for sparkling wine made in the traditional or the, the champagne method um, it is pretty straightforward in the sense that there's only really one stipulation it just has to age a minimum of 12 months in the bottle other than that, it can be any great variety, um, and you know, have at it. So, for instance, Genevieve that I import, she makes a rosé that is, you know, pretty. It's it's a little deeper than pale pink, but it's a pretty classic pink rosé color, and it's 100% Shiraz, right? And so, it, that's a that's one where you have to be really careful because there's been these kind of intense sparkling Shirazes from Australia, and so again, connotation brings the mind in a different direction from what is reality. Um, But Cap Classique is a wonderful thing from down there because South Africa is so, you think of South Africa as being at the bottom of the globe, but it's actually extremely close to the equator, like far closer than we are here. I mean, it runs through the equator, runs through Tanzania, which is only about a four hour flight from South Africa. So because of all of that sun exposure, the skins, regardless if you're cool climate, warm climate, big canopy, light canopy, skins are thicker than most places. And so texturally... You get a lot in wines, whether it's Cap Classique or your Reds. And so even with a Chardonnay Blanc de Blanc like Genevieve, grown in a cool climate in Bot River, which is in, in the Walker Bay area, 100% Chardonnay, you know, picked to where it's high acid, 12% alcohol, you still get a textural component to the wine, which I think is really nice. So those who are used to champagne and this really lean styles, it just gives you like a touch more texture in the wine while you still get these like the beautiful acidity and the bready yeasty components of that autolysis from traditional method. Um, So you get, but like for instance with Genevieve, the Blanc de Blanc that I import, that spends 48 months on the lease. So you end up with a this 100% Chardonnay wine that has this steely component but then the texture from the sun and then that long 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 lees component as well it just gives like it, it just coats your mouth with an almost chalky character from all the leaves in, in the wine so you just get this wide range of Cap Classiques there and it's they're like incredible I hate to use the term value but they're really great quality to price ratio for sparkling wines
0: yeah um Yeah, I really enjoyed that wine because it has that high acid with that wheeze texture as well. really good example of Method Cap Classique. I wish there was more available (laughs) here in California at least. (laughs) Um, So South Africa, we talked about its history um, quite a bit and apartheid and the difficult legacy of apartheid, Um, South African wine industry can seem quite white and Afrikaans. Um, is that changing? Is there more racial diversity within the industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, there is. It is um, almost twelve percent of the winemakers, whether they're head or assistant, are black now. Um, you you still you're seeing more black representation in the wine industry for sure. But it's definitely a small amount. I think you have less than, less than 5% of land ownership in vineyards is, is black at the moment. So there's a very long way to go to bring equality to it. But I think that the country is doing a good job of trying to bring equality. There's a few programs that they have that I think are doing a wonderful job. Uh, one of them is called the Protege Program by the Cape Winemakers Guild. So the Cape Winemakers Guild is a lot like the Hospice de Rhone or the Hospice de Beaune in the sense that they have uh, winemakers that are invited in um, as guild members. Those winemakers are kind of thought, looked at as thought leaders as uh, those who can kind of develop programs to bring more quality but help the industry grow overall. Um, and th- they do a annual auction of barrels that are donated from those participating winemakers. And then that money goes back into the program to try to develop more, you know, initiatives for the, for the betterment of the industry. And one of those, um, one of the things that the the winemaker, the Cape Winemakers Guild, does with that money is the protege program. And so th- this program is brings in about five to seven young black winemakers every year. Um, They put them through a three-year program where they spend a year at a different winery. So in the the total, three wineries in three years. And the goal there is that instead of just doing a harvest and moving on, they're seeing the full year, which is critical. I think a lot of folks do harvest and you get to work really hard, but there's so much more that happens, right? You got to do the pruning and all of the business side of it and the labeling and, and so on. And so I think that this program has done a remarkable job in getting young black people in an industry but giving them a ton of autonomy and helping them grow in a much more uh, sustainable and rounded out way and so I think at this point there's nearly 40 graduates of that program at this point and, and many of them are now holding head or assistant wine-making jobs uh, within the country um, there's also another initiative um, that is, excuse me, for forgetting the name. Um, it is called the Wine Industry Transformation Unit. <clears throat> All of the names for these are like really intense and, and not very like warm. Um, but this this indis- this this initiative is pretty cool. It's a nonprofit that is aimed at bringing more black representation to the industry, and they help to fund this really amazing um, wine kind of uh, co-op in a way called the wine arc. And so basically there are 13 exclusively black owned brands making wine and then have a tasting room in this one specific, uh, property. And it's helping these brands grow. And, uh, I think things like this are critical. We need a thousand more of these to see it really become totally equal. But I think again, in 15, 20 years, what has happened has been immense. And if that pace can continue i think you can get to a point of actual equality probably in our lifetime Um, and i do see a genuine effort across the board and certainly the producers i work with want to see that Um, i want to see that and so i think there's enough
0: smart people who care actually pushing that forward and one of the producers even bought is brooklyn's and the winemaker is young black and female which is really cool can Mm -hmm. you tell me more about her yeah
1: so brookdale estate is uh from the parle area so it's about an hour 15 minutes north of uh of cape town uh it's right next to stellenbosch it is uh is run right now by kiara scott farmer who is a a young black woman she graduated from the protege program um she's looked at as like a as a rising star in the industry for sure um she she her last year at brookdale she was in her excuse me her last year of the protege program was at brookdale it was in their second or third year of operation and at the time a very famous winemaker named duncan savage was uh kind of at the helm of, of brookdale and getting it off the ground after her year of internship was done, she took over the head winemaking position of uh, Brookdale Estate, which made her the youngest head female winemaker in the country. So she was only 26 at the time, which is, is just incredible. And, and by that time, she had already made wine in Sancerre and Condrieu in France, Hartford Court in Russian River Valley, and then obviously in South Africa. So now at 26, she's completed this internship as well and then taken over. And she's been running the show ever since Brookdale is continuing to win loads of awards. Um, quality's getting better. Ratings are getting better every year, and um, and she's just like such a remarkably positive presence. Um, I remember the first time I met her, I was just very magnetized to her and just felt very, um, very like calm and just sort of, like a nurturing presence. And 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 her talent is amazing. So, I at the moment import their Mason Road wines, which are like their young vines uh, from their estate. Uh, on my next container, I'll get in there. Brookdale Estate wines, which are the old vine, um, and yeah, just just what she's doing is 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 truly remarkable in so many ways, and for such a young <laughs> young person, like th- it's it's amazing to think what she'll have achieved in ten years from now or twenty years from now. So I think her impact on the industry has already been tremendous, and the sky is is truly the limit with her.
0: Fantastic. Um, let's talk about markets for South African wine and the domestic markets and the challenge is there because South Africa is not necessarily a wine drinking country um, is that changing? Are more people drinking wine?
1: Yeah definitely South Africa has definitely I think shifted from a beer to a wine drinking nation um, overall uh, again as I think as evidenced by the Cap Classique every arrival um, no matter what kind of establishment you go to but then I think you look at uh the u.s market and it is from from my opinion the reason why south african wine has not caught on here is obviously dates back to apartheid and just closing off but in the last 30 years since apartheid has ended i think what has happened is just a handful of importers have gone in with the ambitions to work with the country which that in of itself is great right we want more people to work there but those importers are largely looking at national distribution, which is also fine. Um, But I think a lot of the best producers in South Africa are making small amounts of wine. And so if you were making a couple thousand cases a year in total, and you want to sell maybe 30 or 40 percent of that to America, it doesn't make sense to send 50 cases to a bunch of different states in a year. That once you gain footing, that's gone in a month at most. and so. The concept of building a brand is extremely hard when there's not enough inventory so i think because the focus has always been take tiny brands and spread them as thin as possible that's the disconnect and so i think what what i'm trying to do with culture wine co is taking my winery partners focused just on california on a wholesale perspective and allow them to have inventory for a majority, if not all, of the year so we can satisfy and allow sommeliers and wine directors and retailers to tell the story and get behind the brands and get to know the winemakers. Because it's historically been an uphill battle to sell South African wine, but it doesn't help when there's not enough supply. So I think giving the ammo to the people who are able to tell the stories to the most amount of consumers is the most important first step. And so that's one element of it. But I think the next element is that you're seeing far more emphasis placed on exporting bottled instead of bulk. And so there's still a large amount of bulk wine leaving the country, but you're seeing the imbalance starting to shift and you're seeing more bulk, uh, or excuse me, more bottled volume and value leave. And that is crucial. Um, When you see a wine that is shipped in bulk, it means it's shipped in a literally in like a big bladder in a container from south african port to say the uk port it is bottled at the port of entry and then shipped basically to like a grocery store that isn't really helping brand south africa although it may in terms of some money into the pockets of that producer it's not helping consumers think about South Africa from a super qualitative point of view, and so I think as we see more bottled wine leave the country, you start to see brand South Africa resonate with consumers more, which is very important for the overall mission of getting consumers to even think about and care about South
0: Africa. Um, Maybe it's because from the UK, which is a very price-conscious market, South Africa is perceived as always being inexpensive, which is... um, a good thing in terms of getting it on the shelf and selling the wine, but it means that an expensive South African wine is a very difficult sell. Um, how maybe there's opportunity in the U.S. where South Africa's lesser known to really promote it as the as a premium wine market. What do you think of the opportunities for that?
1: Yeah, I mean, my like my main mission in Culture Wine Company is to grow the value of exports from South Africa. Um, it is to help them achieve a premiumization of their wines. Because I firmly believe the quality is there. And especially as I'm getting into the market more and pouring for professionals around California, I'm seeing the reactions in such a kind of positive and like intensely positive way that it's clear that the quality is there. And so I think one of the beautiful things about the way a lot of Americans are shopping these days, and certainly like wine lovers Um, and definitely the millennial Gen Z forms of wine lovers is they are buying like they're voting with their dollars right they're saying I want to support a small producer I want to support a female winemaker I want to support a black winemaker or a black owned winery there's a lot of elements of supporting like social initiatives and seeing more equality in their purchasing decisions and I think South Africa offers a lot of ways for them to support a lot of things that they care about and so I think that the element of, of social impact, high quality, and then you know, tasting like the Pinotage that's from Sands of Sinai that is 20 bucks on the shelf, it ticks so many boxes uh, for them. But I do think that getting to the 50, 60, $100 price points will take some time. But I think that starts with building trust. And if I can come to you with a $20 pinotage that changes your mind on what pinotage is or sets the foundation, it makes you realize, well, damn it, 20 bucks, this really over delivers and I want a lot more of this. And what is an 80 or $100 bottle gonna do, right? And so for me, it's time. It, it's just gonna take time to build trust. But I know already what is possible at all of those price points. But once the, once the consumer base once a sommelier retail trade base gets it, then the consumer base gets it, then you can really go full circle and bring more of those around. But it, it really comes down to trust, and that's that to me is is everything. <laughs> yeah,
0: having worked in retail, that's definitely true. Yeah. I've um, managed to upsell many wines based on trust. Yes, yes. At the same time, I remember working at a tasting room in Napa, and a customer asked me, you know, what's really great value right now what's good wine and I said what well, South African Cabernet um, you can get a $25 Cabernet that's equivalent to a $100 Napa Cabernet you're saving a lot of money so I'm not spending $25 in a bottle of wine <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Napa for you Napa's a very unique <laughs> market it's amazing <laughs> um, any other comments you have on, on what's happening in South Africa right now
1: no you know I I uh... I think I'll leave it with this I you know I launched Culture Wine Company in November with the first container of wine coming here and I, I basically spent all of 2023 getting the licensing which is <laughs> a wild experience in mm-hmm. and of itself uh, getting warehousing set up and you know all the all the fun stuff and getting my website live and when the wine finally got here it was one of the most exciting and terrifying moments I've had in my work career because when you see a 20 foot container worth of wine arrive you realize you got to push a rock uphill like fast and I think the response has been so overwhelmingly positive uh, much more so than I thought it would be which is just like very heartwarming um, it feels very reassuring that there's a lot of runway for these wines and it's just a matter of getting people to try them you know and I think that's that's the key thing you could be really really energetic about a wine or a region and show it to people and it falls flat but overall the ex- there's only been couple very small examples where it hasn't landed, but overall people have been like, this is incredible. I'm really excited by what's happening, by the, the stories behind these wines, the quality of these wines, the flavor profile of these wines I've not experienced before. So I think it's offering even more to consumers that I, than I thought it would. And so that's like, as I get ready to go back to South Africa in a couple of weeks to talk about bringing on more producers and meet with potential new producers and put together my second order i am going back with like even more energy about what's to come and i yeah I, it's just very exciting and i think like as more more consumers and, and sommeliers and wine buyers start to open their eyes a little bit um i, I think south africa is going to be a really important region here in the next next couple of years so it's, it's exciting I'm
0: very excited about it Well, I'm excited to share your excitement. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Because I I love South Africa and and its wines, and I really think they need to be shared more widely. So I really, really appreciate you um, doing that by importing these producers. And you'll be there for harvest time, I guess.
1: Yeah, harvest came in hot and heavy this year. Um, This year is, I mean, if you want to talk about climate change in, in one vintage, in September, South Africa had record rains. Eighty hadn't had rain like this in eighty years. And they were so bad, flooding was ripping roads out. I mean, catastrophic. And now during harvest there leading up to harvest, they had days that were in the 30s, sometimes forty degrees Celsius. And so harvest started as much as two or three weeks early for some. So I might even get there as harvest is wrapping up, which is which would be a very, very it is an early year, but it would be wildly early for them to be done by mid-March. <laughs> Um, so it's looking like high quality year, low yields because of these extreme heats and flooding, um, but quality is overall pretty good. So yeah, there's this year is, is quite an anomaly with starting with flooding, ending <laughs> with drought and heat. Mm-hmm. So it's uh it's definitely a tale of of climate change this year. Yeah.
0: Well, I look forward to hearing your report <laughs> when you get back. Uh, but thank you for. Uh, joining me and sharing all your thoughts about South Africa. Thank you for having me. I
1: appreciate it.